You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. European supercomputers were hacked by crypto miners. UK electrical power distributor recovers from its cyber attack. A database containing personal data related to the EU parliament is found exposed. Our evil says it's got the celebrity goods, but has yet to show its hand. The US and China move into a new round of trade and security conflict. Justin Harvey shares insights on how companies are adjusting to the new remote working environment and the impacts to their security posture. Our guest is Isan Farohi from Security Compass on compliance issues and catfishing with some pretty implausible impersonations of U.S. Army generals. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, May 18th, 2020. The motivation behind the attacks on European supercomputers, first discovered in an incident at the UK's Archer National Supercomputing Service, is now clearer. The attackers were cryptojacking, ZDNet reports. Archer has been updating its status regularly. Der Spiegel has reported attacks at six facilities in Germany. Last Thursday, the Leibniz Supercomputer Center of the Bavarian Academy of Sciences and Humanities also closed outside access to its systems. TU Dresden took the same action for its Taurus system. On Saturday, Switzerland disclosed a similar incident at CCSC. The European Grid Infrastructure Computer Security Incident Response Team confirmed that the intruders were seeking to use the supercomputers as crypto mining rigs. Alexon, a middleman in the UK's electrical grid, continues to recover from the cyber attack it sustained last week. Industry Week, while noting that the incident did not compromise power distribution, argues that the attack should place infrastructure operators on alert. The European Parliament told Politico Saturday that a database holding information belonging to some 1,200 elected officials and their staff members, along with another 15,000 other accounts of EU affairs professionals, was found exposed to the Internet. The database belonged to the European People's Party, and the system that held it while operating under the EU's Parliament's europarl.eu domain wasn't hosted by the Parliament itself. The exposure was discovered by researchers at ShadowMap, and EU Today writes that this raises questions about the Parliament's own security. 
The FBI pointed out that the extortion attempt the R. Evil ransomware gang made against the boutique celebrity law firm Grubman, Shire, Masilis, and Sachs may amount to an act of cyber terrorism and that paying terrorist ransom can be a violation of federal law. That angered the gang, Forbes reports, and the Hoods released a lot of anodyne and generic emails purporting to be a foretaste of the dirty laundry they have on President Trump. The dump didn't prove that they had much of anything. The emails weren't by President Trump, who's not a client of Grubman, Shire, Masilis, and Sachs, and they appeared to include mere mentions of his name and uses of the verb to Trump. The path of compliance can be a tricky one to walk, with a patchwork of state regulations here in the U.S., California's CCPS, and of course, the reigning global champion, GDPR. Isan Farogi is VP of Products at application security firm Security Compass. To be honest, I see ourselves in a increasingly steep curve of more and more regulations being introduced. Um, the technology landscape is getting more complex, and their regulatory bodies are trying to keep up, alas, a bit behind. But uh, there are new regulations being introduced left and right, and the uh, Doers, engineers, uh, the business people are having a bit of a challenge keeping up with all these regulations. And I suppose, I mean, it's fair to say these regulations are, are coming from somewhere. There's a hunger for them. People uh, want to have the protections that they provide. But, of course, that provides regulatory burdens on the business owners. It is true. Um, the challenge with that is that uh, everything is getting connected, it's no longer the case that only we are limited to certain software on the internet. Even the power generation systems, industrial control systems, our homes are all being connected to the internet. With connectivity, there are new concerns. There are privacy concerns. There are data protection concerns. And regulatory bodies are trying to do their best try, uh, to keep up. I know Businesses look at uh, these uh, compliance and regulations as a challenge, but they're also kind of a necessary evil, right? It's hard to um, protect the public interest, in, specifically in a competitive landscape where people that can uh, cut corners, can get ahead, could win in the market for a short time before something bad happens to their, their clients and their public. So the regulatory bodies step in, try to put us in, but it also increases the cost uh, for uh, the manufacturers, for the business owners. Where do you come down on, on the notion that we, what we really need here is a federal regulation that will supersede the, one, the ones being made by the states? Well, like in any kind of a, a situation, uh, you start by having some states that are forward thinking. Take California. They are leading the way into starting a law there, and the federal uh, government will start taking a step behind them. And uh, then it comes down to can they consolidate into a national and international level of a standard? This is where the critical role is on the compliance bodies like uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, to come out with a good compliance standard that is balanced, that keeps the interest of both sides of uh, the public side and the business side in mind, something that can take traction. And 
if the traction is there, I don't think their states would be inclined to have their own version of uh, the compliances uh, more and more. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's a, you know, it's an investment uh, in in your future. <laughs> you pay me now or pay me later. Yes, it's paying small installments now or pay in a big chunk later on. That's Isan Faroki from Security Compass. The U.S. Commerce Department's announcement late last week that it would extend licensing requirements to semiconductors made abroad but with U.S. technology is clearly aimed at companies on the entity list, notably Huawei and ZTE. The decision will, among other things, affect the company's ability to import chips made in Taiwan by TSMC. It's also been coldly received by Beijing, Reuters and others report, Global Times, a Chinese government news outlet, quotes a source to the effect that China will take forceful countermeasures to protect its own legitimate rights. Qualcomm, Cisco and Apple, and possibly Boeing as well, are among the U.S. companies Beijing suggests will bear the brunt of what Global Times characterizes as a counterattack. They all face placement on an unreliable entity list and close scrutiny under applicable Chinese cybersecurity and anti-monopoly laws. Global Times, to quote them again, blames the U.S. measures for dragging Washington and Beijing into a tech cold war. And finally, who knows more about matters of the heart than the United States Army? No one, friend, that's who. But sorry, ladies, we hate to tell you, it's not General Nakasone flirting with you by email from a U.S. Cyber Command outpost in Syria. As CyberScoop points out, you're being catfished. It's especially poetic that the fish bait that initiated this whole business was chatter about the musical Hamilton, perhaps including an appreciation of the Aaron Burr aria, Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes, and we keep loving anyway. Anywho, somehow, this involved well-intentioned social media correspondence with another catfish who claimed to be General Steve Lyons, head of U.S. Transportation Command. The faux general recommended that his correspondent, a woman identified only as Susan, spin the wheel of fortune and reach out to his colleague, U.S. Cyber Command Commanding General Paul Nakasone, who, the catfish said, was deployed to Syria, going on patrols and doing a lot of paperwork. He was a lonely widower in need of companionship. For the record, General Nakasone is not a widower in Syria. He's happily married and busily employed at Fort Meade, Maryland, The paperwork part, okay, but the rest of it, it's just a bunch of hooey. The U.S. Army's Criminal Investigation Command shared a list of red flags with Business Insider, the sorts of things you can take as signs you're looking for love in all the wrong places. So when you get that email from a U.S. Army general, madame, you are to consider a general officer will not be a member of an Internet dating site. That seems right. Soldiers are not charged money or taxes to secure communications or leave. Yep, yep, check. Soldiers do not need permission to get married. Who who knew? We all know now. Deployed soldiers do not find large sums of money and do not need your help to get that money out of the country. Check and double check. One can sense the weariness behind Criminal Investigation Command's words. Look, we get it. The heart has its reasons, which reasons know not. But come on, heart, think for a minute. Susan did. She recognized that the whole thing seemed kind of weird. She wasn't in the market for a date in any case. It should be unnecessary to say this, but it's 
probably not. Neither general had anything to do with this nonsense. It's just some inartistic bozo looking for a quick online score. Now, we're just spitballing here, but we imagine CIC's red flags would be waivable with any other military organization in the world. The People's Liberation Army Navy, the Royal Army Veterinary Corps, the Republican Guard, even, heaven forfend, the United States Space Force. You get the picture. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Uh, Justin, always great to have you back. I wanted to check in with you on some of the things that you're seeing and tracking when it comes to these adjustments folks have made of working remotely and how that's affecting their security. Yeah, we're seeing all of these enterprises out in the world and not just in North America. They're all pivoting to remote work for their employees. And there is an impact to their cybersecurity posture uh, by them making that move. And we're also seeing more adversaries that are kind of switching their game up and and really uh, for high-profile targets and high-value victims out there in, in enterprises, we're seeing that adversaries are trying to track them down and get to their home machines. And the reason that we're seeing that is that more and more employees are working from home. And not everyone has a laptop. Some of them actually have used their home workstations and they install their VPN client, they install their their email client on there. And essentially what happens is it makes it essentially extends the the surface, the attack surface of the enterprise to cover the home as well. And the net effect of that is that you'll see more and more adversaries or we've seen more and more adversaries that are targeting home users of enterprise uh, employees in order to uh, find an easier soft target, 
if you will. Now, I was thinking about you and your team because you and I have talked about how uh, when you would go and do incident response that you would travel and you guys had, you know, big, you had racks of hardware that you would, you know, flight cases that you would pack up and, and go and, and, you know, descend upon a situation and, and make an order out of chaos. Um, how has that changed given this environment where you can't just drop in on people and uh, <laughs> even things like flights aren't happening? Well, what's lucky for us is that we're, we are able to do most of the work that we do remotely. Uh, in cases where we do need to take a physical forensic image of a machine or uh, of a device, then we can leverage the client that we're working with and give them instructions. You need to go down into this cubicle. You need to put this USB drive in and so on. But we still have obligations out there. We do have retainers for some very large institutions. And if something were to go wrong, we, we, we may need to send employees uh, on site. But uh, we talked as a global team uh, at the beginning of this pandemic. And many people uh, volunteered to travel or to put themselves in harm's way if it was for a good cause. So um, mm -hmm. if there are any... Uh, interruptions to our supply chain, if there are any uh, attacks versus healthcare and health systems or the systems that are being utilized to develop uh, or deliver life-saving processes, then myself included, we are all uh, volunteering to uh, uh, to show up on site and, uh, and to fight the bad guys. But luckily, we haven't had any of those cases come in uh, that have required us to travel. Have you seen any any shift in the pace of things, either up and down or of things speeding up or slowing down? Absolutely. We are seeing a heck of a lot more ransomware cases out there. Not just your typical, I'm browsing a uh, an email and I click the wrong link and then I have uh, ransomware. That's more of a commodity type operation. It's a, it's a drive-by, if you will. We're seeing less of those, and we're seeing more adversaries that are using advanced techniques to breach the perimeter, establish a beachhead, and then move laterally in order to do uh, privilege escalation and then deliver their ransomware setup from the ground up to be delivered and kind of custom set up. And uh, we're seeing about a 40% increase since the beginning of this pandemic on on those types of of targeted ransomware attacks. Wow. Wow, yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> I mean, that's a real number, right? Yeah, it's it, it, the 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 trick here is that many enterprises are not used to having all of their workforce work remotely. And there are a lot of changes that need to happen to a security operations center to think about that remote mindset. Imagine if one day all of your employees were in the office and working and you knew exactly where everything was. And then the next day, none of them are there. They're all out in the wild. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of things like you need to focus on uh, privileged access, control points, VPN terminations, and focus on those sort of uh, control points that are not normally used as much. Now they're the main uh, vehicle for employees to get into your enterprise and, and monitoring posture needs to shift as well. Hmm. All right. Well, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers... 
Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.